Welcome to episode six of The Afterward, our series of conversations on books, reading, and the church. Here at the Westminster Bookstore, we believe that books and reading play an important role in our Christian lives. And so we started The Afterward because we wanted to to share with you a little bit about the process behind what makes a good book great, as well as introducing you to some of our favorite authors. So far, we've hosted Dane Ortland, David Murray, Mark Rogop, Trillia Newbell, Melissa Kruger, Ed Welch, and Darby Strickland. Uh, you can rewatch all episodes one through five on YouTube or listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you've enjoyed these conversations, we'd love for you to give us a positive review uh, as well as spreading the word to your book loving friends. In upcoming episodes, Johnny Gibson, our host, will be interviewing Mark Dever and Peter Williams. Uh, plus, for all you Christmas lovers out there, we've got a special Advent episode lined up with David Mathis of Desiring God. Uh, as always, you can go to wtsbooks.com afterward uh, for more information and to purchase uh, any of the books that have been talked about. Tonight, we're excited to host Nancy Guthrie, who's the author of over 20 books, including the just-released God Does His Best Work on Empty. Uh, if I had to pick a, a personal favorite of, of Nancy's books, I'd highly recommend uh, Even Better Than Eden. It's, uh, it's probably one of my, one of my very favorite uh, little works on biblical theology, uh, and I'd really highly recommend that one in particular. Uh, Nancy and her husband are co-hosts of the Grief Share video series, and they host respite retreats uh, for couples who have experienced the death of a child. So with that, by introduction, let me hand it over to you, Johnny and Nancy, uh, with a question. Uh, both of you have published children's books. Uh, I was writing a book for kids, uh, something you've always wanted to do. Johnny? Okay, you're live. to do. Um, I sort of got into writing more out of a sense of calling and uh, necessity after I'd um, done my theological training and was entering into ministry. Um, the reason I wrote the kids book really came out of a circumstance where my daughter had died and I was trying to explain to my son Ben about the goodness of God in the midst of suffering. Uh, so the kids book that I've written uh, really has come out of a circumstance and out of necessity. Uh, rather than any sense of feeling of uh, skill or ability. So um, so that's my part in children's books, really. Uh, what about you, Nancy? You've written about 20 books altogether, uh, and they've really all been for adults, but you have written a kid's book uh, called What Every Child Should Know About Prayer. Uh, was this something that you were inspired to do? Or did you get asked to do it? I think Westminster Bookstore might have had something to do with that, that uh, 10 of those had put out an earlier book in the series, uh, What Every Child Should Know About God, and it did. And so 10 of those, headed by Jonathan Carswell, wanted to do some uh, more for the series and asked Westminster Bookstore, who might we ask to do that? And I and I don't know, maybe I'm making this up, but I think that they said, well, why don't you ask Nancy Guthrie? And I was thrilled because when I saw that earlier book in the series, the uh, What Every Child Should Know About God, I mean, I just loved the art. 
I just think yeah. it is, it's so superior to so much art in kids' books. And I was like, if that same person is going to do the art, I am totally in. And I loved getting to write about prayer. I mean, um, yeah. you know, there's something about writing for children. It really challenges you. In some ways, it's harder. I don't know if you found that or not. I mean, mm -hmm. you just, you have to use an economy of words and they've got to be within the vocabulary of children and to write about spiritual things. Mm -hmm. And for me, like when I was writing about the Psalms that use metaphor anyway, you know, and to try to be clear about what the psalmist was saying or other biblical passages, it was kind of challenging, but a good kind of challenge. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it, isn't it? It's trying to convey something profound in simple terms. So it's it's a good challenge. Um, but yeah, I, I had the same uh, experience. I rewrote The Moon is Always Round about three or four times. And actually even it was somebody who read the one of the versions who gave me a bit of feedback and said, well, here's another way to think about writing it. And it sort of opened it up for me, mm. gave me that uh, perspective. Yeah. Um, so let's just back up a wee bit and talk about how you first got into writing. Um, how did you enter into the world of publishing? Mm. Well, I got a job right out of college at Word Publishing in Waco, Texas. Uh, you know, Word was really known for being this big Christian music powerhouse. And my initial thought about working there was that I'd work in the music area because I was, my whole identity at that point in my life was about being a singer. Um, but I remember when I contacted them, they said, well, we have a job opening as a publicist in the book publishing area. And I was like, well, I like books. And so yeah. I went and applied for the job and got the job. And I was really fortunately that I f I'm one of those people who fell into my niche, you know, mm -hmm. th that first job. I just remember immediately feeling like I was made for this. Mm -hmm. It just really suited me. And I loved it. And I was getting to work with some of the leading authors uh, of the day. And that was thrilling. Um, now, mm -hmm. I never thought I would write a book myself. People would ask me that all the time. You work for mm -hmm. a publishing house, you know, are you going to write a book someday? And I would always say to people, I will never know enough about one thing to write a whole book about it. Yeah. And that's really what I thought. I just, I thought I'm good at working with other people's material, uh, but I don't have anything to say. So I really never anticipated that I would. You know, I, I think a lot of people assume if you're a writer, you, you dreamed of doing this, right? Mm -hmm. Your whole life to be a, yeah. a writer. Um, not me. And the other thing is, honestly, Johnny, I, I'd be interested to know how you feel about this is um, I don't see myself as a writer. I, I mean, you know, I put author after my name because I do write books. Um, mm. But I read what some people write and the way they're able to put together words and paragraphs mm -hmm. of such beauty. Mm -hmm. And I just look at that and I just think I I write but I don't know if I'm bold enough to call myself a writer. And, you know, I, I'm always trying to get better at it. But I think of myself more as a Bible teacher who writes it, who writes it down and, and uses uh, writing as an avenue to teach. Mm -hmm. But I'm really more about you know, communicating the scripture mm -hmm. and that one avenue of that is through books. Yeah. How about you? I mean, do you think of yourself? I'm a, I'm a writer. I mean, because you've written several books. Yeah, no, not at all. I, I uh, only really got into reading when I was 18 or 19 on a gap year in South Africa. 
And uh, I've, um, so yeah, so I didn't really read much until later on. And uh, as I said earlier, it's more out of a sense of calling and necessity. Like I want to communicate something mm -hmm. exactly. to the church. And I think I can do it through preaching, but also writing. I remember R.C. Sproul said, that he can preach a sermon and it reaches maybe a couple of thousand people, but if he publishes a book, it reaches a hundred thousand people. And he was talking about the influence of books at the Reformation with Luther and Calvin and the importance of writing, you yeah. know, and I think that's what it is. You you have a sense of burden of, I have a insight here or I have a message and I want to get it across. So mm. yeah, very similar to you. I, I'm not a natural writer. And isn't mind. it amazing where books can go that you will never go, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, you and I both, I'm sure, you know, get letters from people in places. Mm -hmm. I, you yeah. just think, how did my book ever make it there and yeah. have an impact there? And I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for the power of books to go places that I'll never go. Yeah, yeah. And have you got a nice story of somewhere that was surprising. Oh, your books I have so up. many. I have so many. The, I think the ones that amaze me most, a lot of times I'll get something from maybe Nairobi or somewhere else in Africa. Like maybe yeah. they picked up one of my books on the Mercy ship or uh -huh. something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's always pretty amazing to me, but yeah. yeah, I get, I get letters from all over and it's just, it's a great joy. Yeah. Cool. Let me tell you cool. something funny though. Yeah. I, uh, okay. So, um, you know, some of my books have been published in other languages, including Portuguese. And when I get letters from Brazil, they're always in Portuguese as if they think I speak Portuguese. <laughs> so, <laughs> rather than the book, that the book was translated into Portuguese. And uh, when I went to Israel, David and I went to Israel maybe eight or ten years ago, and I we had a, a tour guide who was from Brazil, and I told him that. I said, so, so why is this that it's only the people who speak Portuguese who write to me in Portuguese like they think that I speak Portuguese? And he said, yeah, pretty much everyone who speaks Portuguese in Brazil thinks that everybody does. So <laughs> it always tickles me now when I get those because I think, yep, once again, they think I speak Portuguese. I don't. Yeah. yeah. Do you uh, type them into Google Translate? This yes, I do sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Now, uh, what was the first book you published? My first book was a, a little book called Holding On to Hope, mm. uh, Pathway to God, suffering is a pathway to God, something like that. Honestly, I can't really remember. So um, uh, holding on to hope was my walk through the book of Job uh, during the life of and then following the death of my daughter, Hope. I was in a Bible study right before Hope was born in which we were studying Genesis and we took one week during Genesis to study Job. And I had been, this was two weeks before Hope was born. And I was so... Um, you know, I'd studied Job before. I'd written a paper on it in college, though I probably copied most of that out of something other book. But I, I, when I read Job that time, I just remember it really struck me more than it ever had before. Here was this man, Job, and it says, you know, he loses um, nearly everyone he loves and everything he owns, and then he loses his own health. And then you read in Job 121, and he shaved his head and tore his robe, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. Mm. I just remember reading that and thinking, how did he do that? 
Mm. How is it that that is his initial response? Not after working it through. Mm. His initial response is to fall to the ground and worship. Because I thought, I don't think that would be my response. Mm. And so it was two weeks later that Hope was born. And we found out on her second day of life that her life would be very short. And I remember waking up in the hospital the next morning and thinking to myself, I think I'm about to find out Mm. how I will respond when the worst thing I can imagine happens to me. And uh, so Hope was with us for six months, and then we let her go. And so it was after her death, it was actually, uh, then I got pregnant again um, with another child who also had the same syndrome, our son Gabriel. And it was actually, while I was pregnant with him, I took out the notes from my study of Job during Hope's life and and put that together into a manuscript that was mm. then published as Holding On to Hope. Yeah, and it's been a great blessing to many. Nancy, I, I can speak from personal experience for Jackie and me, mm. that and the one-year book of hope, I know, was a great blessing to Jackie in the midst of our grief of losing Layla. So um, thank you for putting into words what you were experiencing and walking through at that time. Um, what, what, how do you think your writings matured since that yeah. first book? Uh, you've written other books on grief. You've written Bible studies. Your latest biblical theology book was even better than Eden and Saints and Scoundrels. Uh, you've written um, devotionals. You've put some collected writings together. Uh, how do you feel your writings matured yeah. over th- those uh, years? That's that's a good question. Maybe somebody else might be a better judge than I am. I, can, I won't say matured because that seems presumptuous to assume it has, but I will say changed. Um, yeah. You know, I wonder if you feel this way. Oftentimes, you know, almost by the time a book actually gets printed, I look at it and think I would have said, I wish I'd said things differently. And certainly in my early books, uh, I feel a lot that way. Um, I think most of the difference comes from uh, discovering Reformed theology mm. and biblical theology. Mm. Um, I, 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 I'm grateful I had a real solid sense in writing Holding On to Hope in the One Year Book of Hope in regard to the sovereignty of God, mm. which is at the heart of Reformed theology. Mm-hmm. But what I hadn't totally figured out yet is Uh, how to put the gospel at the center of everything. So like in that book on Job, absolutely, I think it's a helpful book. If I were writing it again today, I would get to Christ more. The the story of the the true innocent sufferer, um, the one who suffered, who shows us how to suffer perfectly and faithfully, the one, and I do think I put this in there, that he is the redeemer, right? Mm. That the, when when Job says, I know that my redeemer lives, he, he couldn't have described him in the person of Jesus. And yet I think that's who he saw by faith um, and that he would, you know, once again stand on the earth, which is, it's the resurrection of Jesus that makes that possible. But anyway, all that to say, um, there are ways, especially like, and then maybe in my second one, the one year book of hope, I look back and I think I'm better at handling certain scriptural passages now. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly have a much stronger conviction to make sure that I'm 
not using a passage of scripture to say what I want to say, but instead my aim is to look at a passage and say, okay, what, what did the original author intend to communicate to the original audience? How do I uh, read and interpret that through now the lens of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then draw an application from it? Because I, I want, I want the point I make to be to fall in line with the point of the original author, and not take a passage of scripture and you know use it to say something I want to say, which is can be so easy to do. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I want to get on to that later with your latest book, um, God Does His Best Work With Empty. And so I'd, I'd like to come back to that about your okay. method of uh, of doing biblical theology. Um, just on your writing, what what aspects of your of the process of writing do you do you enjoy, and which bits do you hate? <laughs> oh golly, uh, that's good. I um. Like, uh, what do I enjoy? I enjoy discovery. Mm-hmm. I enjoy research. I mean, um, people ask me all the time, you know, I wonder if they ever ask you this, like, do you go away to write a book? Mm-hmm. Because lots of writers will talk about that, right? Like I went away for two weeks to a cabin. I just don't get that at all. I've never done that. First of mm-hmm. all, I need my books. And I just write in the context of normal life every day. And maybe, and what writing a lot of days looks like for me is looks like studying mm-hmm. and reading and, and nothing gets down on the page because maybe I am trying, you know, I'm looking at a passage, I'm, um, I'm doing lots of reading about it. And my, my, my big challenge is to figure out what, what is, what is that author trying to communicate? And then how am I going to communicate that? How am I going to organize what I say about it? How am I going to get into it in a way that will draw in my readers? And mm-hmm. oh, that has to happen before anything gets on the page. And so I I think I like, I, I like that part. I like the challenge of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I get frustrated along the way sometimes. Sometimes I find myself, and I think it's, this is especially the case in the era of social media. Mm-hmm. I have a shorter attention span when things are hard and they mm-hmm. are not coming to me. Yeah. Do you ever have that? Like, oh, yeah. I, I feel like I, um, like, you know, I'll be working along on something and I, it's not coming. I can't figure out how to say it, how I want to say it, or I'm not finding what I want to communicate it. And it's so easy to just jump over to Facebook or Instagram, right? That's just easier on my brain or I, you know, get up and get a snack. And I suppose maybe that's just part of the process because it's not like many of us can just, you know, be totally productive 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. But I do wish, I, I do feel at times like that writing process has been spoiled for me in a sense um, or diminished mm-hmm. because of a shorter attention span, maybe due to social media. Do you, do you experience that? Yeah, I do. Are you able to keep your focus when you want yeah, to? Yeah, I'm on sabbatical at the moment, and uh, what I've done is got off email entirely. Uh, really? My work email, yeah, it's out of office reply, and emails get redirected to a folder, which I could look at if I want to, but I've lost the desire to. So. Wow, see, I couldn't and, I couldn't resist. Yeah. It's, Somebody it's, might have a message from me there I need to read. <laughs> well, it's cleared my mind. That's what I've realized. It's 
completely cleared my mind so I can concentrate better. And I, I've noticed myself improve over the last two, three months, not having the constant emails. Yeah. So I can sit for two, three hours and read or pump something out. But yeah, I think that's the danger working on a computer is there are so many distractions immediately there. But I was reading a book over the summer, which I started years ago and never finished, but I finished it over the summer called Deep Work. It's not written by a Christian guy, but it's quite popular. And uh, he talks about it's a book for writers, for academics, and he just talks about the need to do deep work and mm. be totally undistracted um, and to have that time in a book or writing a manuscript, printing it off, mm -hmm. going over it and over it. Um, but I, what I do try to do if I'm struggling with the problem, like you say, you hit a, you hit a bump and you're like, I can't understand this doctrine or this, how I would put this in this paragraph. I find myself going for walks or mm -hmm. do some I exercise do and I find I'm still thinking about it and something pops into my mind and I come back and I start writing and it sort of flows better. So it really I'm, helps I'm learning me. those things. It helps me to walk with a friend and try mm -hmm. to put it in just normal language mm -hmm. to explain yeah. to her, you know, say, here's yeah. what I'm trying to, to say, or here's what I, you know, I think this is about. And then I think to myself, okay, don't forget that. Don't forget how you said that. Yeah. <laughs> so you can get home. And it does kind of help me to just get yeah. away from what's on the page, either what I've read from somebody else or my own and just to a normal person, just try to communicate it. Yeah. in words out loud and then a lot of times it comes a little bit clearer to me yeah do you know the story of jonathan edwards when he would no. go out on his horse he you know he would spend 12 14 hours a day in a study and he would uh go out horse ride probably for business or pastoral work or whatever but he would think of things and he would get little post-it notes although i'm sure they weren't called that then and <laughs> pin them to his coat on his on his horse and he would come back with <laughs> all these notes all over him i think one of the wesley brothers knew was john wesley was the same would sort of get this inspiration when he was on his horse and would write stuff down and so i find on my phone i have a app called evernote and i just start typing stuff in you know if i'm sitting at the airport or mm -hmm. even during a sermon the minister saying something i think that's really helpful and i'll type something in that just sort of helps me along the way so um of all the books you've written speaking about the process and what's enjoyable what's difficult uh what's been your most enjoyable book that you've written that's a really hard question um i don't know if i can say enjoyable how about if i say answer your question this way I think if you if you want to look for a book of mine that I think is at the heart of my ministry, and mm -hmm. represent you know, um, you know if you look at the list of my books, I've got a lot of books about loss and grief, mm -hmm. and then I've got a lot of biblical study and theology kind of books, right? Mm -hmm. And um, my book, hearing Jesus speak into your sorrow, I think is the one book that brings those things together most beautifully. Mm -hmm. um, that, uh, you know, written maybe six or seven years after Hope died, as I thought more deeply about it and immersed with other people going through loss and the kind of questions they have. And, mm -hmm. and also, you know, to kind of correct a lot of ways that I thought the scripture is mishandled in mm -hmm. regard to suffering and loss. And so, 
you know, especially in regard to, you know, why did this happen? I mean, that's the big question everybody has when they suffer, right? We, we want to know, was God in this? And in what way was he involved in this? And so anyway, I, I think hearing Jesus speak into your sorrow, I, it, I will... I will always think of that as really being at the heart of my ministry because it blends both that grief and theology. But then I would say that in many ways, if I want, um, if I've written a book that I hope has made the most significant contribution or impact, I I, I kind of hope that that's even better than Eden. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that that's the case, uh, that it's had that kind of impact. Maybe it will more over its lifetime. But I feel like it is such uh, an accessible way to introduce uh, the person in the pew hmm. to biblical theology and the idea of themes that run from beginning to end in the Bible. And it would be a great joy to me if that had the impact of making people hungry, thirsty, mm-hmm. uh, open their eyes to look for the biblical themes, because I think uh, the more attuned we are to the themes that the divine author has written into his book, the mm-hmm. better we are at rightly interpreting mm-hmm. uh, what his word says, and the more likely we are to make much of what the divine author intends for us to make much of, and to not make much of the things that he does not make much of. Yeah. And I know you run biblical theology workshops. It's part of your ministry to yeah, women. Yeah, that's been really fun. Train women how to read the Bible from left to right uh, in a redemptive historical way. Do you want to share with us a wee bit about those workshops? Yeah. Maybe what different form they've taken during COVID-19. Yeah, I started offering those around the country in the fall of 2019. So I did maybe 12 or 13 of them before that day came in the middle of March when suddenly they told us we couldn't go anywhere anymore. And it seems like ever again sometimes, right? (laughs) So uh, I had a whole bunch of them scheduled for the spring and for this fall. And so they've all shifted into 2021. So at this point, I have 21 workshops scheduled for 2021. But we're we're learning to say about all these kinds of things, Lord willing, are we not? We hold all plans loosely, but I am hopeful that I will get back on on the road. So I've got those scheduled all around the country and some internationally, like even in Northern Ireland. Yes. Center of the world, promised land. Yes. So, um, but during uh, this COVID-19, I have been offering them online, which has been fun. I mean, uh, Leading up to this time, I had people in other parts of the world or, or that weren't near cities where I was going to be offering a workshop who would just say, you know, would you do it online? And I was so resistant because I thought, I want, I want people to buy in. I want them to be there, right? And, and I, I want them to be very interactive. And so I just didn't feel like it would work online. And I was so wrong um, because I found with both of those things, first of all, there is great buy-in. And what's been fun is it's been people all over the world who've been doing it. So like, like one of the first one, I remember I had like six women in Australia. So it started at midnight for them and they were on with me for six hours doing this workshop. I call that buy-in, right? Um, but then, you know, I interact with people via chat, uh, and, 
and I had one woman say that she thought she enjoyed it more than she would a live workshop because, you know, my face was as big in the screen as it is on this screen right now. And she said, you know, that was better for her to be able to see my expression than, you know, just being a, a face way up on a, on a platform. So yeah. they've actually been great. I, I'm only doing one more before the end of the year on October 24th. So if anybody's listening and you'd like to join me for a biblical theology workshop, just go to nancyguthrie.com because I'd love to have you join me. That's great. Now, one of the other ministries is with your husband, David, uh, what you call uh, respite retreats. It's come out of the death of Hope and Gabriel, your two great bereavements that you've experienced with David. And uh, do you want to tell us just briefly, uh, what are these retreats and uh, what's been some of the great joys in running them? Yeah. Uh, so David and I, in 2009, we started hosting weekend retreats just for couples who have lost children. Mm. So for the first 10 years, we held them at a 12-bedroom lodge outside of Nashville. So it'd be 11 couples and us for the weekend. And um, we just talked through the unique difficulties that couples going through this loss have you know, uh, some impractical things like, you know, what am I going to do with my child's bedroom and all of their belongings and how are we going to get through the holidays and, you know, those kinds of things. But then also the deeper spiritual issues, those questions about why, what am I going to do with my anger toward God? And, and then also how are we, we're both grieving, but we're grieving somewhat differently. So how are we going to, how are we going to get on each other's team? How are we going to get through this grief together with our family, um, together and, uh, intimately as, as a couple. And so, uh, we, we've now spent the weekend with over 800 grieving parents, which is so amazing. And yeah. it's such a privilege. And in fact, so we had retreats we had to cancel in the spring mm -hmm. and, and the summer. And so, I searched around to find a place near here where we could do kind of an open air retreat. So actually, uh, in a week and a half, October 9th through 11th, we're going to do a respite retreat at a camp outside Nashville. It's, it's this kind of, um, uh, it's, it's a building where like one side of it is all garage doors. So uh -huh. we'll open up those garage doors. So it'll be essentially open air most of the time. And, yeah. Everybody's going to wear a mask. And uh, so, yeah, if, if, if anybody is listening who has lost a child or you know someone who has, we would love to hear from them. We've got space for about three or four more couples, and we would just love to have them October 9th through 11th for this next respite retreat. We have couples coming from all over the country. Yeah, and I can just put a word in. You know, you invited Jackie and me to come along when we were down teaching the Bible uh, one weekend for Westminster in Nashville. And uh it's still a very special memory for us and an experience that we hold very dearly. Very mm -hmm. rich experience just listening to other people's story and you grieve with them and then you get to tell your story of what happened to your child and uh, you really do feel listened to and heard. Yeah. So, yeah. You. When David and I started them, you know, I think we thought that we were going to be the source somehow of the mm -hmm. help and healing and we discovered very quickly at the first one, um, the greatest impact in some ways is just them being with each other mm -hmm. and being in a social setting where you don't feel like you have to walk on eggshells and you don't feel like the weird one or that everybody is freaked out about how to talk to you about this. Yeah. And that's a real relief 
mm. for couples who come to respite retreat. And so it's it's a joy to get to provide that. Yeah, that's great. And speaking of that, uh, I want to get on to your uh, latest book, uh, God Does His uh, Best Work with Empty, uh, which is dedicated to the couples who have been mm. on your respite retreat. Um, what uh, led you to write this book? Well, the very first respite retreat, at one point, I, I looked around this circle of people and I said to them, I know that you are empty and that there is an empty bedroom at your house and there's an empty place at the table and there's an empty place in your future plans and in your family photo and that emptiness to you just seems like your greatest problem. But I want you to know that I don't think that that's how God sees it. But that when God looks at the emptiness in your life, he sees it as his greatest opportunity because God does his best work with empty. And then I just began to emptiness beginning in the very first couple of verses of the Bible, where we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was formless and void, mm. empty. And yet we discover it's not a problem to God, because if you go ahead and read the rest of Genesis 1, you just realize he just speaks. And the you know, the problem of formlessness is there's it's, the world's brought to a, a form mm -hmm. and the, the darkness is eradicated, as he says, let there be light. And then the emptiness is filled and it's filled with life and light and beauty and meaning and purpose and relationship. So you get to the end of Genesis one, the, the very first book of the Bible. And I think we can understand clearly God does his best work with empty. And of course, that's just the very beginning. I mean, you jump from there to, to a, a big point of the story of redemption. You, there's uh, these incredible promises have been made to Abraham that he's going to, you know, he's going to he's going to be blessed. He's going to be a blessing. He's going to be given this land. He's going to become a great people. And he says he's going to have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. But we've just we've already read that there's a problem. And that is that Sarah is barren and Moses, as if to emphasize the emptiness in her life, he, he like, he, he says it again. He said, she had no children. Hmm. And it's like, you're supposed, I think as readers, we're supposed to be, Whoa, what's going to happen here? Hmm. And it's impossible to be dealt with in human terms. Hmm. God has to work and he works in his timing and in his way. After Abraham and Sarah try foolishly to fill up the emptiness in their own way, apart from God, but God does do a work with emptiness in Sarah's womb so that she gives birth to a child that they name Laughter. And so we know, I mean, there at the beginning of creation, we would have read at the, at Genesis 1-2, you know, that 1-2, the verse ended, but the, the spirit was hovering over the darkness of the waters. And this, this is where we begin to have hope that he's going to work, you know. And, and then Sarah, we, we, God says, you know, he is going to do a work so that she will have a child a year from now. And these things, this just prepares us for when we get to the New Testament, there's another woman and 
she her womb is empty, not because she's too old to have a child, but because she's never been with a man. But the angel comes to her and he says, once again, that the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow her and that her womb is going to become filled with the very life of God. And so just again and again, we see through the Bible that God does his best work with empty that very first respite re- retreat, I shared that. And when I was done, my husband, David, just said to me, you know what? That's a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he loved that line. And I've used it, you know, every retreat since then. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. You know, it's it's 11 years later and it is, it is finally a book. But I have, you know, there's, there's a few moments during our respite retreat weekends that are especially poignant. And that's one of them. You know, yeah. when we yeah. try to help them reframe to get a, a different kind of perspective mm-hmm. about this loss in their life and to see as devastating as it is, this is a place that God can work. And, and we, we want to encourage them to welcome him to do a good work in this empty place in their lives. Because I, I just see throughout the scriptures, that's the nature of who he is and how he deals with his people. Yeah. And uh, well, next time David says, I think there's a book in that, you just tell him to write it. (laughs) Yeah, write it yourself. (laughs) Write it yourself, David. Come on. (laughs) Um, What what I liked about the book um, on the back, it says it's amazing how heavy the weight of emptiness can feel, how much room it can take up in our souls, how much pain can be caused by something that isn't even there. I thought it was a really beautiful uh, sentence, the way you've put it there. But I think as I was reading it, I was thinking this book resonates with all of us. And I don't just mean all Christians. I was thinking this is a book I would be happy to give to a non-Christian and say, you know, have you, do you want to read this? And maybe this particular chapter on the kind of emptiness that you're experiencing right now might be something you might be interested Mm -hmm. in reading. Uh, So I, I think you've done a really lovely job of, not just speaking about emptiness in the abstract, but you actually put some flesh on different kinds of emptiness. Uh, do you want to talk about some of those kinds of emptiness in the Yeah, chapter? sure. Because what I did with the book um, is I just kind of went through the Bible and various evidence, various um, uh, get get to see God do a work in the emptiness in the lives of his people. And so, you know, the first one is the the empty stomachs of the Israelites in the wilderness. And, you know, they're complaining. And what does God do? He sends manna that drops in front of their tent every day. But then when you get to the book of Deuteronomy, the next generation is getting ready to go in. And God actually tells this next generation why he allowed that first generation to feel the emptiness in their stomachs in the first place. And he said, he said, I did this so that they would know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I mean, that their feeling of emptiness was purposeful. So they, they could be taught something so they could be trained to trust God to be their provision. That training because they had this huge craving uh, to go back to Egypt and eat the food of Egypt. And to go back to Egypt was this was the place that was literally killing them, killing their infant sons. Mm. And yet they had a craving and appetite for something that was so strong. You know, they were filling out their applications to get their job 
jobs back at the brick factory. It just didn't matter. And, and isn't that us? Like uh, all of us have desires, but they can become cravings, Hmm. um, cravings that we, um, that we, that we, we get to the point about something. We say, I cannot be happy without this. And really that's the definition of an idol, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Anything apart from Christ Mm -hmm. about which we say, I cannot be happy unless I have that. Mm -hmm. So Israelites hungry in the wilderness, um, the woman at the well who is so relationally third man has been able to provide her with living water. But then this one she meets says that he can, um, Let's see what else. Oh, yeah, the st- story of Naomi in the book of yeah. Ruth. She uh-huh. actually uses the words, right? Uh, yeah. She says, I-, I went away full, but I've come back empty. Mm-hmm. Um, the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, yeah. you know, it, um, life, everything's meaningless, right? A sense of meaninglessness. And I even think about right now during COVID-19, I think that is so common. Like, what is my life about? And mm-hmm dealing with boredom and all of these things. And it's helpful for us to take in the wisdom of the book of Ecclesiastes and say, yes, this world doesn't work right. Mm -hmm. And if you ever expect to be fully satisfied in the here and now, you're going to be constantly disappointed. So Mm -hmm. disappointment, uh, Habakkuk, he's, he's facing all that's about to sweep into his life. And yes, he's got this solid, rugged confidence that he can find joy in the God of his salvation and that his security is found in God, not in his circumstances. And that's another one that I just think has ended up so timely here for us with COVID-19 because, you know, he, he talks about there's no olive tree, you know, there's no olives on the branch and there's no fruit on the vine and there's no cattle in the stall. And, you know, for us, it would be my savings account is getting emptied out and I've lost my job mm-hmm. and I can't keep paying for my house. And these are the kind of things in COVID-19 we're facing. And Habakkuk helps us, I think, to yeah. be able to, to sing a song to the God of our salvation in the midst of fear about the future and have a solid confidence that God will be our security. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when I was reading it, I was thinking of uh, a phrase that John Piper used when he found out he got cancer. I don't know if it became a little book by him, but it was mm. Don't Waste Your Cancer. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I thought this, this book is a really good way of saying don't waste your emptiness. Yeah. You know, we all experience emptiness in a different way, in a different form, at different stages of life. And I thought what you're really trying to get across is, you know, don't waste your emptiness. God's trying to teach you something like he was trying to teach the Israelites in the wilderness that man does not live by bread alone. And uh, I thought there were some really lovely practical applications with these different manifestations of emptiness. You know, mm. um, one of the things you do, which you've touched on already with your book, even better than Eden. Uh, what I appreciate was you, you, you start with the problem of the particular manifestation of emptiness. Uh, but then you go to the Bible and you you trace that kind of emptiness all the way through. And you start with Eden where there was no emptiness. Then you start, you go to the fall and because of the fall, we experience this kind of emptiness. Maybe it's loneliness. 
Uh, but then God comes to dwell in the tabernacle and in the temple and in, in Christ God with us. His spirit comes down to dwell in us. And then we're waiting to see God face to face where we won't have any loneliness ever again. Mm. And I really appreciate that in each chapter, you're really doing a, a mini biblical theology. Mm. You're really doing redemptive historical hermeneutics as you're uh, dealing with that particular aspect of emptiness. Where did you first come across this redemptive historical biblical theology flow? What people or books influenced mm. you? And where would you encourage someone to start? Because as you said, you're not just wanting to give people random proof texts to give them a bit of comfort. Uh, you want people to read their Bibles better in the midst of their emptiness, in the midst of their grief. Uh, so, yeah, what what was your influences? What books helped you? What people have helped you in that yeah. regard? Let me say first, Johnny, uh, one thing that really drove me in putting together this book, I thought about the typical books you see on the the shelf at, say, a Costco or a Sam's in the Christian section. You've probably never been to Costco or Sam's, have you? Um, <laughs> But if you ever went to one, all right, what you see, you know, you see a Joel Osteen, you see a Joyce yeah. Meyer and some of these others, and, and they're very felt needs driven. Yeah. And so much of Christian publishing is oriented toward that. And so I, I, as I was working on this book, I, I just felt like, okay, I want, I, I'd like to write a book that when they look at, people look at it, okay, okay, this is dealing with a felt need I have. I feel empty. Yeah. But whereas other books might offer psychology or self-help or some good advice mm -hmm. to you to deal with your emptiness, mm -hmm. I, in every part, every aspect of emptiness, wanted to put forth Jesus Christ yeah. as, as our only hope for filling that emptiness. So um, I hope I succeeded in that. That was certainly, certainly my goal. But your question was about... Um, where I learned this kind of thing, uh, you know, it's probably be about, you know, uh, 12, 15 years ago, I, I just began to hear more writers, preachers, teachers teach with this sense of redemptive history. And no matter where they were teaching from in the Bible, it always got to the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in a way that moved me and melted my heart. And as much as I, you know, I grew up in church, and as I said, I worked in Christian publishing. I've just been in the Bible my whole life. But as I began to hear redemptive historical preaching and teaching, I just thought, I don't know the Bible at all. Uh, it, it made me feel like I need to go like back to kindergarten to reorient how I understand. So, I remember um, I went to Tyndale. I said, could I write the one-year book of discovering Jesus in the Old Testament? And they said, yes. And so I went out and buy, I bought three books. I bought Edmund Clowney's The Unfolding Mystery. Mm -hmm. And I bought uh, uh, Christopher Wright's Knowing Jesus in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And then I bought one other I won't mention because it wasn't that helpful. And then pretty soon after that, I discovered you know, Graham Goldsworthy. And wow. read the Goldworthy trilogy, which, you know, was like mind blowing to me. And, and then I, I feel so grateful that we live in the era of the internet. I mean, there are negative things about that. There's so many positive things because it enabled me to listen mm. to preachers and teachers who teach with this way, because 
I, I think when it comes to biblical theology, we can't really learn it just by reading a book about it. I, I, I think if, if we're going to actually incorporate it into the way we think and certainly the way we teach ourselves, that the best way to do that is to listen to people who do it well. So I began to download teaching and preaching. You know, like I, I can remember listening to that Tim Keller sermon. Probably most people have heard it where he began to talk about the better Abel and the greater Noah, right? And the greater Abraham and the greater Moses and all of that. And my mind was just, what? Because, you know, the people of the Old Testament had always been to me just, you know, examples to follow or avoid. Mm. Uh, certainly not... Uh, showing me in some kind of shadow form something about the person and work of Christ. So that was just new to me. Um, I began to listen to a lot of people with accents kind of like yours. Mm -hmm. uh, the, I, there's something about people in the UK and, and Australia that I think somehow didn't become as immersed in being as pragmatic the Christian faith as we did here in America and that somehow biblical theology, at least in some quarters, didn't diminish so much. So, you know, I listened to a lot of Scottish preachers and preachers from the UK and from Australia, from, you know, more theological college and people from the Proc Trust and uh, who just teach in that way. And that just began to shape me, I suppose, and yeah. certainly convinced me that um, it's, it's a worthwhile pursuit. Yeah. And I think once you see that hermeneutic at work, you read about it, you experience it. If you sit under that kind of preaching, it's it's hard to go back to anything else, isn't it? Oh, um, yeah. It's uh, you, you don't really want to have another kind of diet when you've fed on something like that. You're like, no, this is so rich. I don't want to go back to a moralistic preaching or, or I would say there are some weaknesses with some biblical theology preaching where, you know, they get to Jesus in the first five minutes of the sermon and you're like, you've just given it away. You know, I, <laughs> I was waiting for a bit of drama, a bit of tension there. Uh, so I think there's a way to do it, especially if you're teaching or writing from the Old Testament, preaching from it, that mm. sort of builds up the tension that's there in the text that's crying out for a savior. But you're like, yes. You're waiting for it and waiting for it, and then they finally get to Jesus. Yes. It's far richer. I talk about if you get to Jesus too quickly, I say this to my students here, it's you sort of give people an anemic Jesus. It's like mm. the obvious Jesus and an anemic one, whereas if you leave it and get all the richness out of the text, then you see Jesus in a far greater light. You know? And it has to... Um really flow out of that specific text, right? Yeah. So that you get to yeah. Christ uniquely uh, through that text so that almost if that's all you heard from the sermon, you mm -hmm. you might know exactly what text they were preaching from because it so uniquely presents Christ. Because I think some people perceive it this way, it just begins to sound tacked on, maybe if it yeah. sounds the same every time. But when you are focused on the text and when there are images in the text, words, phrases, ideas, and you use those to get to Christ. It's mm. so rich and so real. You know, I'm fortunate. You've met my pastor, Nate Sheridan, mm. and uh, I have a fabulous pastor. And one thing I love, I, I it makes me so happy to sit under preaching week by week that I know he's going to get to Christ and that it's going to be beautiful. And mm -hmm. so I'll, I'll go into church and I'll open up the bulletin and I'll look at the passage he's going to be preaching on. And if it's, especially if it's a passage I've never worked 
on before and I'll look at it. And sometimes I think, boy, I can't see it, you know, because I haven't been working in the text all week. And I just, my initial impression, I just look at it. I was, I, I'm just like, I don't know how I I I don't know how you're going to get to Christ from here, you know. Yeah. But then, sure enough, he does, and my yeah. heart, sings, you know, because it's yeah. it's so beautiful and it's it's not tacked on; it's authentically mm. from the text, and yeah. oh, makes me so happy. Yeah, it's great, and this is one of the things I've appreciated about. Uh, your books, Nancy, and um, this one is sort of st- in that similar vein where each chapter is a little mini biblical theology, and it doesn't sound samey because Good. again, you're you're taking it from particular texts and letting the text drive how you're going to articulate this particular manifestation of emptiness and how God fills that emptiness. You know, now just to bring this to a close, you close your book with uh, referring to a prayer of Paul's. Um, And uh, it's the prayer in Ephesians 3, um, 14 to 19. And I thought, of course, you've used this one because it ends with saying, uh, Paul prays that they might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Uh, do, you, do you want just very briefly to say why do we need yeah. as Christians to hear that particular prayer? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me say this. Um, I, I I worked on a talk just on emptiness, like a, a one-time talk uh, about a month ago. So, you know, after the book is even out. And when I did that, I realized that I really shouldn't have started even talking about emptiness and fullness just with Genesis 1-2, with the emptiness of the world, because I really should have started with with before the beginning. And before the beginning, what we would see is God is full. You know, see, see God in his divine fullness. You know, he's not missing anything. He doesn't have a modicum of any of his characteristics or or perfections. God is full to overflowing. And what does he do in that? He creates the world and he creates man and woman. And his desire is that his glory would be shown, um, you know, that would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And all of that flows out of his divine fullness. So I wish I'd started there a little bit more in the book. but um, And so then when we get to this prayer of Paul, we realize this is what we need. I mean, you and I can try to fill up the emptiness in our lives with so many things, can't we? You know, scrolling through the internet, um, alcohol, shopping. I mean, just so much. We try to fill the the empty places in our lives with it's, it's kind of like when you eat a bunch of junk food in the afternoon before a nice meal and then you don't have room for the nice meal. And we just, we fill our lives with so much junk. Um, and so that prayer is important because Johnny, you and I are only going to satisfaction we crave and the companionship we crave and the security we crave and the joy we crave. If instead of filling our lives with just more of ourselves or more of this world, that we experience God filling us with himself and in his overflowing goodness, he's willing to do that. Just even now, as we are joined to Christ, he 
He fills us with his spirit, a spirit who is at work generating the fruit of the spirit in our lives. And, you know, you and I are always going to struggle with some emptiness, with some loneliness, with some disappointment in the here and now. But our great solid hope is that our futures are filled with divine fullness, that the day is going to come when Christ is going to return and he will eradicate all the empty places in this world and in our lives and that we have a future of divine fullness. And it's just such good news. Yeah, and I I think you put it really beautifully in that final chapter, uh, and I would really encourage people to get the book and to finish it and to get to the Mm -hmm. final chapter, which really, I think, ties it all together beautifully with that prayer. Uh, Nancy, it's been wonderful to have you on the afterword, this online conversation about uh, books, reading in the church. It's good to get to know you a bit better as a writer and uh, a bit more background behind your books and also your ministry to Mm. grieving couples and also to women as you seek to train them in uh, how to teach the Bible in their appropriate contexts and uh, how to read their Bibles better and Mm. also just serving Christians in general with uh, some really good books. So Mm. thank you for your ministry. Uh, Blessings to you and David and Matthew. Well, love to you and Jackie and Ben and these other new littles. And thank you to Westminster. I'm so grateful that they make my books available and promote them. I'm grateful for them as a source to buy solid Christian theological books. And I'm just grateful you would include me in this series. Well, it's been a privilege having you on. So thank you very much. Uh, Our next episode is with uh, Pastor Mark Dever at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. I'm going to be interviewing him about reading as a pastor and uh, what books have influenced him and books that he's written. So please do join us for that uh, in the next episode of The Afterword. Thanks very much for joining us tonight and uh, God bless.